That was gorgeous, wasn't it? Just beautiful. Just beautiful. I am happy for today because it gives me an opportunity to prove that I can preach out of another text than Exodus 32. Lord, make my life count. Almost 40 years ago on the eve of my ordination, I chose that short prayer as a motto for the years ahead. More recently, as I've begun to contemplate the, the final stage of my ministry, I've found myself turning once again to this prayer, although in a slightly different form. Now it sounds something like this. Lord, whatever remains of my life, whether it be months or years or a decade, may every remaining moment count for you and your eternal kingdom. The longing that one's life should count for something, that it should be invested with purpose, a meaning that lasts when the inhaling and the exhaling cease and, and our last will and testament is read, this God-given longing for life to matter is, I'm convinced, the silent prayer of most men and women. And the urgency with which we offer up this prayer only increases with the passing of years. In his book, The Chosen, Chaim Potter tells of, of a wise and loving Jewish father who sits down with his son to explore the meaning of life. I learned a long time ago, Reuben, that a blink of the eye is nothing. But the eye that blinks that is something. A span of life is nothing. But the man who lives that span, he is something. He can fill that tiny span with meaning so its quality is immeasurable, though its quantity may be insignificant. Do you understand what I'm saying, Reuben? A man must fill his life with meaning. Meaning is not automatically given to life. It's hard work to fill one's life with meaning. Do you understand what I'm saying? Of course, as Christians, we're tempted to respond that the measure and the meaning of life is a given, a gift from our Creator God who made us in His own image and assigned to us immense and eternal worth. Still, I think we can identify with this Jewish father in his desire to teach his son that Life is too precious to be taken lightly, too valuable for one to fill its moments with a meaningless froth. Certainly, Scripture teaches us the importance of discovering our God-given purpose on this earth and pursuing His meaning for our lives. In the absence of this discovery, all that's left is a pathetic cry. This cry, the cry of one who's wasted his life, is the subject of a story recounted about the famous French prisoner, Papillon. Papillon had lived a life of crime and was eventually arrested and sentenced to a life sentence on the Devil's Island. Night after night, as the story goes, he was tormented by a recurring nightmare. In this nightmare, he stood before a tribunal you are charged, they would shout down to him, with a wasted life. How do you plead? And every night in his dreams, he would hear his own tearful reply, guilty, I plead guilty. 
As I read this account, it struck me that I could think of nothing more pathetic than that. To examine one's life in the light of what our Creator intended and woefully conclude, I have wasted my life. I have squandered my time. I've invested my talents where they could yield no eternal dividends. How can we avoid the feeling that our lives intended by our Creator for worthy things have been wasted, squandered? That we really didn't count for anything. Might I suggest that we begin by examining the lives of those men and women in Scripture whose lives did count for something. Men and women whose prayer to God was that their lives would count, and that prayer was answered in an abundant way. Such a man was Elisha the prophet. And by observing the attitudes and actions of this man of God, we can learn the characteristics of one who desperately wants his life to count. And we can see as well the faithfulness of God in answering this prayer. Consider then with me the characteristics of a man or a woman who wants more than anything else that his or her life should count for God. The first thing we observe is this. Such a man or woman is eager for opportunities to serve. In 1 Kings 19.20 we read, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. You know, we could speak endlessly of our desire to count for the Lord. But the real test comes when we're confronted with some specific opportunity for service. Will we run to it, as did Elisha? Will we go for it? Will we give it our best shot? Will we take hold and wrestle it to the ground? Will we redeem the moment, the opportunity? Or will we begin to backpedal? Find excuses why we can't do this particular task. If necessary, run full speed in the opposite direction. Those who really want their lives to count for the Lord don't waste their breath speaking endlessly of what they're going to do for the Lord someday. Someday, when the perfect opportunity, one worthy of their unique talents, comes their way. Instead, they eagerly run after and embrace the specific opportunities that present themselves every day. We mustn't be so naive as to think that because Elisha's name first appears in 1 Kings 19 at the time of, of his um, recruitment by Elijah, that this was the moment when he began to long for a life that counted for God. The fact that young Elijah dropped the plow behind which he'd been walking and ran after Elijah, ran to embrace God's purpose for his life, suggests at least two things about his life prior to this moment. First, that the Spirit of God had been preparing him for just such a moment, such an opportunity for service. And second, that Elisha was already in the practice of saying yes to the Spirit's promptings. Notice there was no coaxing here, no sales gimmicks, no coercion employed by Elijah, just a simple nonverbal symbol, the placing of his own cloak on the shoulders of young Elisha. 
And then without so much as a word of explanation, the man of God turned and walked away, leaving young Elisha with a life-altering decision to make, the biggest decision of his lifetime. And yet there was no hesitation in Elisha's response. He needs only a second to recover from the shock of this weighty moment, and then he drops his plow and he runs after Elijah. He runs to embrace God's call in his life. All this without so much as a hint of reward or pay or fame or fortune. Are you eager to feel the mantle of God's Spirit resting on your shoulder? To hear him whisper in your ear, come, follow me, I have an important job for you to do. If you're eager to hear those words, then you must begin today to follow the Spirit's promptings towards the simplest acts of obedience and service. The desire to do some great work for God, to make your life count for Him, doesn't find its fulfillment in a moment. But it comes with the practice of pursuing opportunities to serve Him in small, everyday matters. Before we would win the world for Christ, we must be willing to profess Him before our friends in the workplace or the classroom. Before we count for Him in the marketplace, we must count for Him in our homes. I have a young friend at the University of Illinois who... uh, has a splendid dream, a marvelous and worthy vision of how he can make his life count for Christ. And in a day when many young adults have little vision beyond becoming rich or at least comfortable, it's a joy to listen to him talk about his vision for a home for underprivileged children. But between my young friend And his dream stands one big obstacle. He's still learning to embrace the opportunities for ministry and growth in his everyday life. Will he ever realize his dream? Will his life ever really count for God? Yes. If. If he learns to run as hard after faithfulness in the small matters of his everyday life as he's running after his dream to change the world. The man or the woman who is serious about wanting his or her life to count for Christ must first be eager for opportunities to serve him today in the small, everyday matters of life. A second characteristic of the one who desperately wants his or her life to count for God is this. He, she, fully embraces heaven's priorities. In verse 19, we read, he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Verse 20, and he left his oxen and he ran after Elijah. Elisha was almost certainly a rich young farmer. We know this from the simple fact that he had 12 teams of oxen and 12 plows, virtually unheard of in his day. Both of which assume at least 12, or excuse me, 11 servants, he would have been handling the 12th plow himself. In contrast to this, the, uh, the aging prophet Elijah, who approached him and laid his mantle on his shoulders, was garbed in the meanest of clothing, uh, a hair garment and a leather belt. 
What's more, the prophet's existence was notoriously simple and austere, bordering on poverty. Now, young Elisha had to know that a choice to follow Elijah, a choice to become a prophet, was a choice to leave behind the comfort and the affluence that he had known earlier in his life. He knew it meant a life of near poverty. He knew that unlike a priest or a Levite, there was no provision in the law to care for the daily needs of a prophet. He would have to learn to live in complete dependence upon God, waiting upon Him daily for His daily bread. As I thought about the immense decision before young Elisha, I was reminded of Zeffirelli's film, Brother, Son, Sister Moon, in which he tells the story of another rich young man who faces virtually the same decision. The young man in the film is St. Francis of Assisi. Standing in the square of his hometown, he repudiates his father's wealth and his own comfort in a most dramatic fashion. As the townspeople look on, he takes off his clothes and turns naked towards the fields where the lepers and the poor of his day, the outcast, lived. And he exclaims with resolve, I am born again. And thus begins a life of service among the poor. Elisha's resolve to pay whatever price was necessary is only slightly less dramatic than that. The text tells us that in response to the grizzled old prophet Elijah's uh, gesture, placing his mantle on Elisha's shoulders, the young farmer dropped his plow in the furrow where he was plowing, and he ran after Elijah. Then returning home only long enough to say goodbye, he burned his plow, his plow, he cooked the oxen over the flame and gave portions of meat to the folks around him. Then he, quote, set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. What was it about Francis of Assisi? What was it about Elisha that caused them to turn their backs on comfort and affluence and choose a life of poverty and service? Well, they had a dream. They had a vision of a greater purpose for their lives. They wanted their lives to count for God. I've known over the years a number of men and women, some young, some middle-aged, some even in their senior years, who have dreamed of making their lives count for God in His kingdom. What makes Francis and Elisha different from most of these folks isn't that they had the, a dream of the man they could be, what they could become, and what they could accomplish for God, but rather the fact that they were willing to pay the price to see that dream become a reality. It was Cardinal Sunans who summed up the uniqueness of, of such men when he wrote these words. He wrote, happy are those who dream dreams and are willing to pay the price to see them come true. Such a man was young Elisha. He was a man who had learned to count as heaven counts. He had learned to use God's arithmetic. He had come to understand that while the world counts in dollars and cents, 
Heaven rejoices over a single soul that finds his way into the kingdom of God. He had learned that while the world says, I'll build bigger and better barns in which to store my newly acquired wealth, God says, thou fool, tonight your soul will be required of you, and what will you give in exchange for your soul? And while the world says, you only go around once in this life, so grab all the gusto you can, God says, he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. So what's the bottom line? Just this. If you dream of living a life that counts for God, you will have to count as heaven counts. Otherwise, your dream remain just that, only a dream. The third characteristic of a man or a woman who desperately wants his or her life to count for Christ is this. He must see life in terms of calling, not security. Look at chapter 19, verse 21. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment, and then he set out to follow Elijah. You've heard of burning your bridges behind you, right? Well, Elisha burned his plow and his oxen behind it. Now, you may argue that he really did nothing of the kind, since there were 11 plows and 11 teams of oxen left over. But I like the man's sincerity. I like his decisiveness. It's all too easy to get excited about serving the Lord and run off on some two-month-long missions endeavor. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big believer in short-term missions. But it's quite another thing to sign up for life, to become a card-carrying member, to close the door on personal ambitions and, and supposed guarantees of future security, to burn your plow and, and, and cook your oxen and face into the future with a new sense of calling and a new kind of dependence on God. I'm not arguing for irresponsibility or a naive approach which says, God called me so he's going to have to take care of everything. But I am applauding in young Elisha a certain abandon to the Lord's call on his life, a willingness, a commitment to make God and not our natural drive for security Lord of his life. The church father, Tertullian, was approached one day by um, a young inquirer who said, who is this God who will not let me cling to my more agreeable securities? Am I never done with my returning, my letting go? I would be a Christian, but after all, I do have to live, don't I? To which Tertullian replied, do you? During my years pastoring at the University Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, there were many times when I wanted to give that same response to some young man or young woman struggling with God's call on his or her life. Marty, they'd say, I want to count for Christ. I want my life to matter for the sake of the kingdom, but, but I can't just throw away all this training, can I? 
I can't tell my parents that I'm going off to seminary or joining some mission agency to serve in a place no one's ever heard of before or that I'm going to take a lower-paying job here at home in the cities helping the poor and, and those who, whose rights are being challenged. After all, this is the real world. And a person's got to live, doesn't he? More than once I wanted to say, I don't know, does he? You see, the real question isn't one of living or not living. We know that. The real question is whether we will build our lives on the sinking sand of what we call security or on the unsinkable foundation of God's calling on our lives. General Douglas Douglas MacArthur once commented, there is no security on this earth. There's only opportunity. The world holds out the offer of security, but it's a lie. We buy insurance policies. We double and triple lock our doors. We hire security firms to guard our savings, and we pay companies to, to protect us from identity theft. We pay into Social Security. Those statistics show that 70% of young people don't expect to ever get a pay, any pay out of it. And still, we settle for a life built on security, even if it's only imaginary security. But in turn, we forfeit the adventure of a life built on God's calling. In his commentary on Ephesians, Roy Putnam writes, many have no awareness of the high calling of God. Their motto in life is forward, not upward. Their goal is success, not holiness. There is ambition, but there is no aspiration. Not so Elisha. Faced with the call of God upon his life and wanting more than anything else to make his life count for God, he burned his plow, he cooked his oxen, he spent his security in an evening, and he ran after the call of God, embracing it for the rest of his life. He left no nest egg to return to. He abandoned all to follow God's call on his life. I want to confess to you this morning that I have something of a love-hate response to the try-it-you'll-like-it mentality of our age. I know it's encouraged many of us to try our hand at missions work in the inner city or overseas, and that's a good thing. But I believe it has also spawned a generation of weekend crusaders and short-term missionaries and week-long commitments and part-time Christians who know a great deal more than their Christian predecessors did about hedging their bets, protecting their flanks, and keeping their options open, but who know little or nothing about abandoning themselves to the call of Christ, about becoming vulnerable and dependent for the sake of the kingdom. The saddest part of all is this, that in forsaking calling to pursue security, we forsake the joy and the adventure of the Christian life. Helen Keller wrote, security is mostly a superstition. It doesn't exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Life is either a daring adventure or it is nothing. And sadly, many settle for nothing. Lord, make my life count, they cry. But faced with the call of God, they settle instead for security and wind up 
with nothing. Our age needs more young men and women like Elisha who will pray, Lord, make my life count and then burn their plows and eat their oxen and face into the adventure of life lived in terms of God's calling. This much I can tell you for sure. Our lives never really count for much so long as we insist on viewing them in terms of security instead of calling. Now we come to a fourth characteristic of the man or the woman who desperately wants his or her life to count for something lasting. And that's this. He or she pursues a life of servanthood rather than a life of notoriety. Verse 21b, Elisha set out to follow Elijah and he became his what? His servant. So we've already observed when Elisha bid his parents in his own personal ambitions farewell, he did so not in order to take up some some well-paying job, some glamorous job. Oh, no. He did so in order to become a menial servant. So insignificant was his work in those early days with Elijah that we don't even hear about him again until 2 Kings chapter 2 when Elijah ascends into heaven. A further insight into Elisha's work during those months, those years of anonymity, appears in 2 Kings 3.11, where we're told that his job during those days was, quote, pouring water on the hands of Elijah. Do you know what that means? That's like our phrase, becoming somebody's gopher. He just did whatever Elijah needed. He ran and fetched whatever it was that the prophet needed. Interesting, isn't it? Elisha longs for a life that counts for something. And God responds by calling him to a life of menial servanthood. See, I think we wrongly assume that if our lives are to count for anything of real worth, we must do something sensational, something big, something that that everyone will take note of, something that will get a million hits on the Internet. But our maker who hears our prayers to count for something grand has a better way. He fashions us instead as humble servants, and he bids us follow the Lord Christ in the most trivial and mundane of life's task. But, and here's the the mystery and the beauty of his plan, in the process of performing this humble service, there comes to us the awareness that our lives really do matter. Though no one is looking on and applauding, though the world is not significantly changed by our feeble efforts, though sin and injustice and pain still rule the day, yet our lives do count. For in our small daily acts of humble service, God is glorified. And those touched by our ministering hands know something of the compassion and the healing of God. And yes, sometimes even they know something of the power of our Savior mediated through our poor ministry. In just a few days now, my oldest sister, I have two, my oldest sister, back in Columbus, Ohio, will celebrate her 80th birthday. As a young woman, Judy was bright, attractive, talented. She had artistic skills. She was a gifted writer and speaker. In fact, it seemed to me her little brother 
that whatever she put her mind to, she succeeded at. I was very proud of my big sister. She was full of what adults call potential. So it's too bad then that she never counted for much. She never wrote a best-selling book, though she could have, I suppose. She never started a women's movement. She never went on a national speaking tour. Instead, she has spent the past 60 years of her life caring for others. First, she cared for three daughters who have grown up to become servants of the King of Kings. And then she cared for our dad following his stroke. And she cared for her father-in-law when he went blind. And then she cared for her mother-in-law through her years of dementia. She cared for our mom who lived to be nearly 100 and went to be with the Lord just about a year and a half ago. And oh yes, when our son, Jared, was fighting cancer, she left her home in Columbus, Ohio and came to Chicago to help us care for him and his family. And during most of those years, she found time to teach high school and to care for dozens of students. It's too bad she never counted for much. Such a shame. Such a waste. Christian, our lives begin to count for God and his kingdom the day we start to give them away, the day we begin to, what did Christ say? Lose them in service to others. How was it that Christ put it in Mark 10, 43? Whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. Finally, there's one last characteristic of the man or the woman who wants his or her life to count for Christ, and it's this. He must be ambitious for God and his kingdom. Now, maybe this last characteristic of a man who wants his life to count for God seems to contradict what we've been saying about his commitment to a life of servanthood. But our concern here is not with such ambition as makes one seek the limelight or seek acclaim for him or herself. It is rather the driving impulse to see God himself glorified and his kingdom work extended by the tireless work of his faithful servants. Without so much as a hint of desire for personal acclaim, Elisha demonstrated an intense longing that he might be used to advance the honor and the kingdom of God. And to see this most clearly, I want to refer you to 2 Kings I don't have time to go and read the passage, but let me give you the context. The setting is this. Elijah, the prophet, is about to be taken into heaven in a whirlwind. But before he leaves, he turns to his young assistant, whose job it will now be to be God's spokesman before kings and nations. And he asks him, Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken away? And almost as though he's been anticipating this exact question, Elisha responds. He says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. That's incredible because never had there been a prophet of God quite so endowed with Jehovah's power as Elijah had been. And here's Elisha 
daring to ask for a double portion of this man's spirit. Why? Why would he make that request? In order that although he knew himself to be a humble servant, a most humble man, he might become an instrument through whom the glory and the power and the majesty of God might be made known among the nations. Though he's content to be a humble servant, unknown, unacclaimed, his desire for the Lord is quite different. For himself, he is not ambitious. But for the Lord God, he seeks all the honor and glory which are rightfully his. And this, he knows, will require a ministry of the Spirit, a ministry in power well beyond his own. And so he pleads for a double portion of Elijah's spirit that through him God may be glorified. Some years later, as Elisha now himself lays on his own deathbed, he's visited by King Jehoash of Judah. It's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 13. And as years before, Elijah had offered him a parting favor, so now Elisha offers King Jehoash a parting favor. Go to the window, he tells the king, and shoot an arrow toward the east. This arrow, he tells him, is the Lord's arrow of victory over your enemy, Aram. Next, he instructs the king to strike the ground with the remaining arrows of victory. And in compliance, King Jehoash takes the arrows in his hand and he strikes the ground with them once, twice, three times. The man of God, Elisha, is angry with the king. But why? He tells the king, this was your chance to win a great and complete victory for the Lord. Why didn't you strike the ground five or six times? But because you struck the ground only three times, the Lord's victory over his enemies won't be complete. What was he so angry about? The man's on his deathbed. And here he is, you can picture him struggling to sit up, to express his anger with what's just taken place in his, in his presence. What was his concern? It was the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom on earth. He simply couldn't understand or excuse the half-hearted commitment and, servant of, and service of one who, who wasn't ambitious for and totally sold out to the glory of God among the nations. I wonder how often I, I wonder how often we strike the ground with God's arrows, but Three times, not because we're so humble or feel so inadequate, but because, like King Jehoash, we're not as zealous as we might be for God's glory and the advancement of his kingdom. I wonder how often we settle for business as usual, when what is at stake is nothing less than the glory of God, and the advancement of kingdom, his kingdom in our home, our neighborhood, our church, our country. Elijah teaches us by his life that if we would really count for God, we must be ambitious for his reputation and his glory. 
I close this morning with the following challenge. Suppose that like the French prisoner Papillon, you were to stand before a tribunal, but in your case, a heavenly tribunal, and hear the angels in heaven yelling down to you, you are charged with a wasted life. How do you plead? Could you offer the evidence that would clear you? Could you offer the evidence of a, an eagerness to serve the Lord Christ? A commitment to heaven's priorities rather than the values of this present age? A life built on God's calling on your life rather than on a search for security? A life of servanthood rather than a search for popularity and being liked? An unflagging ambition to make the name of Christ great. As I prepared my notes for this morning, I thought of many, that's not an overstatement, many in this congregation who have lived their lives in such a way as to count for God and count for his glory. I'm so excited that that's part of the truth of who we are as a congregation. I believe that. There is a lot of greatness in this room. Did you know that? As Christ counts greatness. People who have given their lives to serve and to minister to others. There's a lot of greatness in this room. But I want to ask you a question. What are the days and the years that still remain? I'm 75. Uh, at least once a day, I have a conversation with the Lord in which I say to him, Lord, you know I have lots of regrets about yesteryear, but I can't do anything about those. I don't know how many more days or months or years or even a decade you might extend my life. But whatever it is, I want those days, every one of them, to count for you. Christian, you said, maybe you're in your senior years. You say, well, I thought we were going to have a revival for the young people. I heard your text and I thought, what a great passage. We're going to have a revival for the young people today. No. This is a great prayer for young people. It's a great prayer for people in their middle years. It's a great prayer for 75-year-old retired pastors. Lord, whatever remains of my life, may my days count for you and for your glory. What are the days, the years that still remain? Spirit of God, thank you for, for being a God who has called us with such a high calling. I like the way scriptures talk about that. A high calling. Yes, indeed. There's so much of worth and value that we can invest in. Above all your glory and the advancement of your kingdom, may we be faithful as long as we live. May we plead with you that our lives may count for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. This we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.